Center Points, the podcast of the Pullman Center for Contemporary Media. I'm Jonathan Nichols Pethick, director of the center. And my guest today is Jonathan Coffin, uh, who is the chief of staff here and the associate VP for communications at DePaul University, works in the president's office. Uh, Jonathan's also a 2006 graduate of DePaul, where he studied political science and was a member of the Media Fellows Program. Uh, following graduation from DePauw, Jonathan worked as press secretary for Congresswoman Shelley Moore Capito from West Virginia, uh, who is now the senator-elect, and he worked there for about two and a half years. Uh, so welcome, Jonathan. Thanks, Jonathan. This is Jonathan Hour. Jonathan Hour. This is the Jonathan Hour. Um, so what I wanted to do today was talk a little bit about um, the events in Ferguson from a perspective that isn't sort of the traditional perspective that we might take. So I'm watching the news that night, and I'm stunned by the, A, I'm stunned by, you know, the, the lack of broadcast networks there. <laughs> um, but the cable networks were doing their thing and showing fires and burning cars and, you know, and uh, basically covering themselves, covering looting, mm-hmm. um, not giving us a whole lot of information. Um, but then there's a whole nother side to this, which is uh, where I think you come in, which is thinking about how politicians respond to this. We all had our responses to this, and there's been a n- range of responses coming from different sectors. But one of the things that's really interesting is how, how do elected officials um, respond to this kind of event, and what are the stakes, what are the... Um, what are the implications of what they say? So um, I guess what I want to do is start with you and say uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about what your role as press secretary was, mm-hmm. um, and then we can go on to that sort of larger question. I think, that this, I think this is a fascinating topic, particularly for the role that certain types of politicians can or cannot play yeah. <clears throat> in addressing these issues. But um, So my job when I was press secretary for Shelley uh, really was to help her think about you know, what is her public perception and how does she present herself to the public. Um, that ranged from anything from you know, writing her press releases and crafting statements about whatever piece of legislation was before us or whatever major news event was happening back home. Um, it was setting up events for her back in the district, um, ideally events designed to garner media attention mm-hmm. when she was traveling, ar- traveling about and traveling around. Um, so in a, in a very standard public relations activity. Um, but, you know, you were also typically thinking about, you know, what is happening that might not be directly related to your boss, but you're occasionally asked to comment on it. And I think the incentive structure is, now that I'm not working on the Hill, is, is interesting because, you know, when you're on the Hill, and particularly if your boss is a, a relative moderate, that is to say, um, they're not interested in necessarily making news for being particularly extreme on either side or the other. You know, you, ha- you have your Michelle Bachmans who, mm-hmm. who revel in making news because they say something outrageous. And they may not know that it's outrageous at the time, but um, they clearly don't mind being the center of the spotlight for saying something like that. And you have similar uh, members on the other side of the aisle that will say something outrageous um, or or they, they seek out appearances on programs because they know they will be asked to say um, pretty hard-line things. But there's a whole bunch of people in the middle who avoid those moments, if ever possible, because there's no political gain for them in saying something outrageous. 
And I think that's where this debate starts to become interesting. What do those people do? Yeah, and so that is the question. So from, you know, from the perspective of you, you really do have to have something to say on it, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want to be left out of that mix, um, even if you're not courting uh, the, the, the media attention necessarily. Mm -hmm. You've got to speak to your constituency. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, obviously there's a range of constituents around. So um, someone like, um, uh, you know, a senator from or a congressperson from uh, Missouri or the St. Louis area is going to speak in a very different voice perhaps than someone from West Virginia. Yeah. Um, so maybe you could take us through a little bit about, you know, what would be the mindset of someone like uh, Congressman, Congresswoman now, Senator-elect uh, Moore Capito, um, thinking about this kind of event? I think, um, I'm going to take it outside of Shelley necessarily, sure. but just generally I would think a moderate member or a member who thinks of themselves as not, you know, not at the extreme and not from the district or the state where mm -hmm. this event like this is happening, I think their initial gut reaction is to try not to say anything at all. It's to, you know, why wade into something that is polarizing? You know, if you say one thing, you will likely only stir up controversy with one subset of your electorate. If you say a different thing, you'll stir up a controversy with some other subset of your electorate. So I think for the most part, they will try to say nothing at all, or if they, say some, if they do say something, to say something as benign as possible. Um, you know, talk about the importance of conversation or talk about, um, uh, you know, understanding perspectives. You know, not bad things to say, but not particularly helpful in moving the conversation forward. So I th that would, I think, be their initial instinct. Because mm -hmm. politically there's no incentive for them to be, to, to take a hardline stance yeah. again. Okay. And so then, so it sounds like if they're then pressured or goaded into, so, so, the, so let's say journalists are saying, well, we really want you to say something. Mm -hmm. um, would I be right then saying they're going to think of something as benign as possible? I'm going to say something. I'm not going to take a hard stand anywhere. I think, I think that's probably the natural reaction. I think where it becomes interesting and where I think you have new conversation that personally I hope is taking place um, and I won't pretend to be a Rand Paul fan by mm -hmm. any stretch of the imagination, sure. but I think you do, you are seeing more politicians, and Rand Paul is, I wouldn't put him in the moderate camp, but you have people like that that are having conversations about the underlying elements that apply to something like Ferguson. So what is the criminal justice system really like for African Americans in this country and persons of color? And um, so I think there is a window for some to start talking about those things in a way that doesn't necessarily mean they have to take a polarizing stance on Ferguson, but can start to talk about and educate their public about um, what Ferguson is really about. Because I think what you've seen in the last, say, 48 hours, to, since the verdict at least, or since the, the grand jury uh, result, um, you've, you've seen the Rams players come out and do the hands up, don't shoot, and that created its own controversy over the past 48 hours since Sunday of people saying, oh, you're criticizing police, or you're making light of this, or um, when in reality, I think most people who are who are using the hands up, don't shoot reference, including members of Congress who did so on the floor of the House of Representatives just yesterday, um, are saying, no, we're talking about the criminal justice system. We're talking about 
what are our structures actually like in terms of what it means to be a person of color in this country and what your relationship may look like with either law enforcement personnel or with um, prosecutors generally. And I think that becomes a window for um, majority politicians from otherwise, uh, districts who are otherwise not affected, potentially to start talking about this. And I think the degree to which they choose to speak and choose to take a stance about the larger question of something like the criminal justice system more broadly will be the degree to which we know, will, will be the evidence of whether or not this conversation is moving us anywhere. That's a great point. And so what I really love about that point is it talks about moving forward. Um, and what I want to ask about now is, you know, when we watch the news, the cable news, or we read the papers, we really are, I feel that the, the news media is trying to, they're moving backwards in some ways. They're trying to fill in gaps. They're trying to answer questions that um, about the incident itself, whether Michael Brown was turned toward or away from the, the officer, um, what happened on the streets in Ferguson, um, uh, what damage has been done. They really are mired in a, in a sort of past mm -hmm. that doesn't really necessarily do much good. Um, we, you know, we're never going to know the details, uh, the full details of what happened. Um, and yet, that's where they seem to want to tell the story. That seems to be the easier story to tell. And I think they do miss opportunities <clears throat> when they focus on the scandal of, say, the Rams players doing the gesture of hands up, don't shoot, um, as opposed to saying this is really about the criminal justice system. So it's, what, what you said really strikes me in that it's, it's, it's um, an opportunity, a window for majority politicians, politicians who are not in these districts, who might, whose constituents might not have much at stake particularly with this particular incident, um, to start talking about these very important issues about the justice system. Um, so the question I have then is, given the, given the news media's desire, generally, I'm not going to lump them all together, but generally to kind of tell that backstory and try to fill in details that are a little bit more mm, uh, incendiary um, and based in conflict, how would a how would a politician and their staff try to work to try to push the push journalists in the direction of of that conversation that really should happen rather than trying to um, stoke uh, uh, fires? I think the challenge comes down a little bit to what the perspective of the staff for that member of Congress. And what's the perspective of that member of Congress? Is the staff in a position to, are they ready, are they ready mm -hmm. to have the conversation about the criminal justice system or about the fact that, um, you know, you're, you know, I was listening to radio this morning and, and it's, and this now seems commonplace for a lot of us, but it's not commonplace for maybe every, the majority of people in this country, and that is things like, um, the arrest rate and conviction rate for, you know, youth on, on black youth on marijuana convictions is significantly higher than white youth on marijuana. I mean, we have no evidence to suggest that, you know, persons of color are somehow using marijuana more than, than white. Than In white fact, people the evidence are. would suggest it's probably equal. It's it, yeah. probably equal, but the the evidence of actually looking at at convictions and certainly jail time and other things would lead you to lead you to come to some different conclusion. And um, I think. 
if you have a staff and a member who are in it, ready to, to, to point to facts like that, then when they're asked about something like Ferguson, they have an opportunity to say something like, you know, I, I'm not going to delve into the details of exactly what happened in Ferguson. I wasn't there. I do not know. What I do know is that there are some challenges that we face as a country with the way our criminal justice system works and the way our criminal justice system does or does not treat people fairly. And I think this Congress or whatever, we need to have that conversation and that our policy agenda needs to focus on that. I mean, they need an opportunity to shift it to policy. Now, yes. our Congress hasn't exactly been the greatest in recent years at doing policy, but um, that would be a way, I think, for, for a member of Congress who wanted to and felt enough pressure um, in certain ways to respond um, without necessarily having to put themselves in the camp of either completely with the Ferguson protesters or mm -hmm. completely in the camp of the police defenders. They could sit in the middle and say something that um, won't be incendiary, but definitely moves the conversation towards um, something that I, I think is productive. Yeah, and, and you know, and you actually sort of pre-answered a question I had, which was, you know, at what point then does the does the politician and and his or her staff have to start worrying about um, other kinds of powerful constituents or lobby groups, say um, the police unions and and things like that, where it might be perceived that you're saying if there's a problem in the in the criminal justice system or there's a potential problem that we need to address policy wise, now we're potentially um, insulting uh, people who put their lives on the, on the line every day. Um, that's a, that seems like a real tightrope that you have to walk. Um, and I'm not sure there's a question to ask about how do you do that because I think it is just sort of as you go, right? And I think true good politicians have the relationships with those groups that they can say certain things that um, maybe someone who doesn't have that relationship. Like if you have a really strong relationship with the police, with the police in your district or the police in your major city, you can probably get away with saying some things that someone who doesn't but who needs to be perceived as having police support can. I mean, if you feel like that relationship is solid, you can give them a heads up and say, hey, look, I'm going to say some stuff. Um, this is not directed at you. This is, this is a larger point, and I'm going to need your help. Um, but that takes... That takes some smart politicking. I mean, you, you got to know what you're doing, and you got to have the relationships. Well, it seems like one of the problems too would be um, you're going to have a, a, a couple different kind of conversations going on. One, you're going to have this conversation that you have personally with leaders of those groups. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, that conversation is going to happen publicly, mm -hmm. um, and you're going to have to nuance both of those. So it almost seems that media coverage might get in the way of some of those other personal conversations. Mm -hmm. um, and that um, happens all the time. Yeah, right. So how, how, do, you, how do you manage those? Is, is it a matter of just then reaching out outside of more public circles and saying, this is what I'm really talking about? I think, I think there are those politicians who, um, and I think they tend to be the successful ones, that... Um, seek media coverage when it's appropriate, um, but for the most part, have meaningful meetings with the right people 
in their district or in their area to talk about whatever issue is, is important and, and then seek to come to resolution about those things. Um, and then media coverage follows. Um, that's, to me, the winning strategy. I think where politicians get into trouble is when um, they don't do that and either say something publicly or, or, or either they don't do that and then they say something publicly that's incendiary, or they, they have their conversations with the right constituents or the right, the right group within their district or, or, or city, but then say something different in that meeting than what they say publicly. That's where you start to get into trouble. And I think sometimes that can happen because um, you know, we've all been in situations where we're talking to someone and we think we've said one thing, but they heard something different. So part of that is making sure you're really crystal clear about what you're saying and getting, making sure everyone understands that what you're saying before you then go off to the public and say something else to the press. Um, but I, I think relationships matter, and I don't think relationships have been this, the strength of our recent Congress. That's a really good point. I'm going to shift the, the, the question here just a little bit. So on the one hand, we're talking about major media outlets that have access to these politicians and their staffs. But there's this other, there's a sort of, um, as we know, uh, growing and growing uh, journalism uh, field of the blogosphere, mm -hmm. um, which is harder to control. Mm -hmm. From the perspective of a press secretary, um, how, what are some of the strategies for dealing with these more contemporary, um, newer, uh, slightly <coughs> more under the you know under the radar kinds of uh, information that's out there and to be had. Um, how do what are some strategies for con for controlling that? You can't. You can't. Okay. <laughs> um, you you try to limit the moments in which your boss can have. Um, totally unscripted on-camera access. Mm -hmm. um, or when you do, you try to make sure you prep them so that uh, whatever, whatever unscripted moment is captured is one that's unproblematic. Um, and you think whenever you see someone get in trouble, it's because they either say something thinking they're off the record or say something and they don't realize they're being filmed. And um, you know, one rule that I think everyone should, for the most part, subscribe to, which is, is always assume you're on the record. Always assume there's yeah. a camera in the room. That would make sense because because more than more than ever, there, there likely are. is. There likely is. Yeah, and it may, it may it may it may not even be that the person who films you is necessarily a political you know opponent or enemy. There may be someone who completely supports you, but um, it, it's still if it's out there and about. All of a sudden, something that maybe riles up your base isn't something you want to be saying yeah. to the electorate at large. Yeah, I mean, someone with a cell phone, with a with a smartphone, and a, with a you know, with an iPhone, at a meeting, and catches you saying something, puts it on Facebook. It's out there. It's out there. Um, and it doesn't matter if it comes down because, well, as we saw, as we saw literally in the last week, a congressional staffer posts made makes one post on Facebook. And uh, is now has resigned. Yeah, if she took it down and she apologized within like an hour yeah. of posting it. It doesn't matter. She's doesn't matter. done. Yeah, it's 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 out there and it's going to stay out there. Um, well, this is fascinating stuff. So, um, are there are there uh, examples 
in the in the press right now, or in the in the world of politics right now, where you see people trying to move this conversation forward in useful ways? I think, um, and I, I mentioned before, um, politically, me and Rand Paul don't necessarily get along all that well, but I have to admire at least a little bit the his willingness to to talk about the criminal justice system in a way that I don't think very many other Republicans are doing. Um, I think his relationship with Cory Booker has, has been a good one. I know they've received some criticism, but I think you know, a willingness of someone who's a Republican presidential contender to talk about that issue is, um, is newsworthy. I think the big question is, will he be alone? Mm -hmm. Will other Republicans follow suit? And will the pressure around something like Ferguson in the aftermath of Ferguson create pressure on politicians who otherwise may not necessarily have a political stake in this to feel like they must start talking similarly and must start um, thinking about these issues similarly. Um, not because the end is merely to talk and think about, but that that's a first step to you know, other, other action. and. Um, you know, reform to the criminal justice system as it is. You know, what are we doing about minimum sentencing? Do we support minimum sentencing anymore? Do we support minimum sentencing on the on the crimes that we currently have them on the books for? I think, you know, those are the questions that um, I, I see Rand Paul and certainly Cory Booker asking. Um, right now, he's kind of alone. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure there are a bunch of Republican contenders rushing in behind him to have that same conversation. But if the pressure of Ferguson continues, you know, sadly with each incident that we have, I think that that conversation starts to get um, more important. Great. Well, I want to thank you for uh, sitting down and talking with Absolutely. us today. It's been great. This has been fantastic and, re and really enlightening for me. I, I, feel like, I feel like I'm on NPR. It's really, it really makes my day. <laughs> if only. If right? only. <laughs> well, thanks again. And uh, I look forward to... Uh, watching what happens out there. Uh, me too. I'll be, I will be curious to see. My guest today has been Jonathan Coffin. Jonathan is the Chief of Staff at the President's Office and Associate Vice President of Communications at DePaul University. He's also a 2006 graduate of DePaul, where he studied political science and was a member of the Media Fellows Program. This has been Center Place.